Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to turn your copy of God's Word to Psalm 104, Psalm 104, as we uh, continue through a selection of the Psalms this summer, this morning, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Psalm 104. As you are turning there, we'll invite any children who will be participating in our children's class to make their way and to the back room there where we'll have our volunteers there to greet you and to instruct you in the truth of God's Word there in that context together with you this morning. But here we're going to be in Psalm 104, and uh, as we have done every week, even though it's a longer psalm, I want to take time to read the psalm in its entirety. It is meant to refresh and to restore our souls. And so let's listen to the truth of God's Word read out loud together this morning, and then I'll take time to pray for us and to ask for the Lord's help, and then we will, Lord willing, dive into the truth of His Word together. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You were clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. <clears throat> they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, with which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, 
they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious and majestic psalm this is before us this morning as we reflect on your creation and how you relate to it and care for it and sustain it and rule over it. And so, Father, I just I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Father, we know, as we will even talk about this morning, we know that if not for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, that we would be cut off for all eternity from these glorious truths. And so, Father, we thank you for the righteous life of Jesus Christ that was lived in our place. We thank you for his death, that he died in our place. We thank you that he rose victoriously on the third day so that we one day will join him in that glorious resurrection and we will be in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity rejoicing in your creative hand. So, Father, I, I pray that as we are awakened to the truths of Psalm 104 this morning, that you would use these truths to set our feet on the solid foundation of your sovereign rule of this world. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and rejoicing in how you provide for this world, how this world obeys you. It is not out of control. It is under your sovereign direction. And so, Father, I pray that you would use these truths in Psalm 104 to bring hope and encouragement to our hearts, to, to help us battle against worry and anxiety, and instead to rest in your sovereign providence over all things. Father, we ask that you would do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think among us this morning through the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first verse of Psalm 104 tells us exactly where this psalm is going and what it intends to accomplish for us this morning. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. This is what we get to meditate on together this morning. The greatness of God. There is nothing that ought to bring us more joy or more satisfaction than our hearts getting to meditate on the greatness of God in Psalm 104 this morning. Verse 1 says that he is clothed with splendor and majesty. These are overwhelming, powerful words that the psalmist is saying to us this morning. And the rest of this psalm is meant to show us exactly what he means by that statement, that he is very great and clothed with splendor and majesty. Now, as we've already seen this summer, so many of these psalms are about how we ought to respond to God or what we need to remember about God when we're dealing with sin, doubt, depression, worry, or even fear. The Psalms remind us, as we've seen throughout, it reminds us of God's faithfulness to us, even when we're struggling through trials and hardship. But this psalm is different. This psalm simply reminds us of the greatness and the glory of God. In fact, I would argue that the truths of Psalm 104 
are meant to help us with the very struggles we've seen in Psalms like Psalm 32 and then Psalm 89 and all these other Psalms that we have looked at together. These truths are meant to strengthen us. In fact, I remind you, as we were in Psalm 89 last week, one of the things we saw, one of the ways we are to respond to God when it seems like he's not keeping his promises is that we're to remember that God is able. And I don't know of any better place to point us than Psalm 104 to remind us that God meant to strengthen us, meant to be the foundation under our feet as we deal with the things that the other Psalms are honest about, right? We are going to deal with trials. We are going to deal with hardships. We are going to face sin struggles in our lives. And we need the truths of Psalm 104 to stand firm in those days, to be reminded of who God is. So therefore, by God's grace, let's simply soak ourselves this morning. Simply ruminate over, meditate over the the realities of the glory of God on display in Psalm 104. But before we do that, I do want to just stop here for a moment and lay a bit of a foundation under our feet for Psalm 104 because this psalm was not written from an apologetic viewpoint. So when I say apologetic, that's a technical term for defense of the faith. Psalm 104 wasn't written to prove to you that God created the universe. Psalm 104 simply assumes it. Psalm 104 assumes that God is the creator of all things, that God spoke and everything that we know came into being out of nothing. That's what Psalm 104 assumes. It is built on the truth of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And I mention this because so often in our modern world, when we think about creation and God's relationship to creation, we start thinking about scientific debates. And those are not bad conversations to have. Those are good conversations to have as we deal with the defense of the faith and apologetics and all those kinds of things. Those are really important conversations. But that's not why Psalm 104 was written. Psalm 104 was written to lead us to stand in awe, not to argue. Psalm 104 was written to drive us to worship and praise of our sovereign creator and king. And so I pray that that's what the Lord accomplishes in our hearts this morning. So we're going to look at five ways that creation reveals God's character to us and drives us to worship. Five ways creation reveals God's character and drives us to worship. Number one, creation serves God's purposes. Creation serves God's purposes. Number two, creation is established by God. Number three, creation is sustained by God. Four, creation brings joy to God. And finally, creation causes us to praise God. So let's just move through these one at a time, section by section through Psalm 104. So let's first see that creation serves God's purposes. Look there with me again at verses 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds his ministers of flaming fire. These verses are meant to show us, to describe to us how the power of God far exceeds and outweighs anything in our world. The things of this world are tiny in the hands of God and they serve his purposes. So for example, there in verse two, it says that God covers himself with light as 
with a garment. Right? Think about that for a minute. The very light that fills this world, the world that we know, this light that shines on us from a blazing hot sun that is 93 million miles away from us, right? Light that even though it's 93 million miles away from us is still so hot that if we spend too much time out in it, it can cause permanent damage to our skin. This light that is so powerful, it heats the ocean and the the earth to the point where it creates these unthinkably powerful storms and hurricanes. It is that force that this is talking about when it says that he covers himself with light as with a garment. That light is nothing more than a robe that God wraps around his shoulders. Now, of course, I remind you, as is true of the rest of the psalm, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. This is not literal. He doesn't literally in his body wrap the light around him. But the point is, he is of such glory, of such majesty, of such magnificence, that light to him is just a garment that he is able to wear on his shoulders. It goes on to say that that he can hold the heavens between his hands and he he stretches it out like a tent. You see that there in verse 2? As we look up into the skies, it seems overwhelming to us, but God simply grabs it and makes it a tent, makes it a canopy, as some translations say. Verse 3 goes on to say, the second half of verse 3, that he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Now, that doesn't mean that God is right sitting up there on a cloud like with a harness, right, riding it on the wind. No, what it means is like someone who rides a chariot, the the driver, the person who steers the chariot is in control of it. He tells the horse how fast to go, where to go, what direction to turn. This is what God is able to do with the clouds and with the winds. That's what it means when it says that he rides on the wings of the wind. He is in control of it. It obeys his direction. It does what he commands it to do. It obeys his will and his desire. Similarly, verse 4 goes on to say that the winds serve as his messengers and the flaming fire can be his minister. In other words, he rules over them. They belong to him. They do his bidding, the winds and the fire. But there's even another layer to verse 4 that's not obvious at first reading. But if you recall many, many months ago, right? Almost a year ago when we were working through the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, the first chapter is all about the angels. And the author of Hebrews is comparing the angels to Christ and saying Christ far exceeds them. And in Hebrews 1.7, the author of Hebrews connects this verse, Psalm 104.4, connects it to God's sovereign rule over the angels. He quotes this and says that these messengers, these ministers are angels, which just reminds us that even the angels are part of God's created work, that he created them. Even they, even they obey his direction. Even they submit to his desires. So all of creation, including the angels who are created beings, obey the direction of the Lord. Now, when we reflect over this reality, over God's sovereignty over creation, our hearts should swell with, with wonder and, and also comfort. But even as we reflect over this, we need to be careful that we not rob God of the glory that he fully deserves by refusing to acknowledge every aspect, every aspect of what his sovereign rule over creation means. This is what I mean by that. When we pray as we ought, right? We often pray if, if a storm is heading towards someone we love or they're going to be in danger. We pray that he would just 
take the storm away, make it go a different direction, make it fall apart before it gets there, right? We, we do these kinds of things all the time. We pray because we acknowledge in our prayers that God is in control of the weather, right? He's in control of the clouds and, and the winds and the fires. They belong to Him. They serve His purposes. We pray that and we believe that, but that means we also must accept that even when they cause damage and death, they're under His sovereign hand then also. He directs them at all times, not just some of the time. We see this in Job chapter 37, verses 11 through 13, speaking of God. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. Creation serves God's purposes. He is in control of it all. I love how one commentator puts it. This is from John Calvin's commentary. This is what he says. By these words, we are taught that the winds do not blow by chance, nor the lightnings flash by a fortuitous impulse, but that God, in the exercise of his sovereign power, rules and controls all the agitations and disturbances of the atmosphere. They all belong to him. He directs them all. Now, I want to be clear, while we should and can affirm that God rules over and directs all of creation, including the clouds and the winds, none of us in this room, including myself, can claim that we know why he does any particular thing. That's where we step over the bounds of what we ought to say about what God is doing. Job chapter 37, verse 13 says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. It could be for any of those things. It could be for correction. It could be an act of wrath and punishment. It could be an act of love. It can be an act of simply providing rain and nourishment for the land. It could be all three at the same time. It could be a hundred. It could be a thousand things at the same time. We simply can't know. But what we can know and what we can rest in is the truth that creation itself bows to its creator and king. This is what the author of the psalm, Psalm 104, wants us to know in these first four verses, that creation serves God's purposes. But secondly, he also wants us to know that creation is established by God. Creation is established by God. Let's look together at verses 5 through 9. What we have in 5 through 9 is a powerful recounting of God creating the world, the earth, and then establishing the earth. So you look there at verse 5, it says he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. In other words, he created the world. He established the earth in its position so that it would not be moved. That doesn't mean it literally doesn't move, right? We know that the earth orbits the sun, but what it means, it is fixed in its place. It's not going to go flying off to another star somewhere else. It is established. He has fixed it in place by his sovereign rule. He created it and he has established it. It will not be moved. Verse 6 goes on to say that he covered it with the deep as with a garment, meaning the waters covered even the mountains, right? You see that in the second half of verse 6, the water stood above the mountains. Now, one of the images that may come into our mind at first is of the flood, but this is actually talking about the creation account. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
in the early stages of the earth when God created it before he formed it and shaped it on day one of following, it seems to have been this formless mass and the waters covered it, right? The spirit hovered over the face of the waters. That's what's being talked about in Psalm 104, verse 6. He covered it with deepest of the garments. The waters stood above the mountains. So it's talking about that initial state of the earth when God first created it. But what is it that happens next? What is it that God does in Genesis 1? What is it that God does here in Psalm 104, verse 7? At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. And as a result, it goes on to say, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down, that God set a boundary for the waters so that they would not again cover the earth. It's exactly what Genesis 1 says happened, right? He divided the dry land from the water. He caused all this to happen. Now, just as a brief side note, notice with me what verse 9 says. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Well, if you know the Bible, you know the story of the flood and Noah and the waters again seem to have covered the earth after creation. So I think the way we must therefore interpret verse 9 is that it's saying it will never happen again in a permanent way. That Yes, it, it happened in the flood. The floodwaters receded. It wasn't a permanent state or status of the earth. And even then, even then, after the flood, we know what God promised, right? With his bow in the sky, he promised that he would never again destroy the earth with water. Once again, demonstrating his rule and power and sovereignty over the sea. So so what verse 9 is saying, he set a boundary that they may not pass. Yes, in the great flood, this Historic one-time event, it did happen again, which, by the way, shows just how wicked the earth had become, that God had to, in some ways, start over. But even then, the waters went back to their rightful place, to the boundaries that God himself had created for them. So having said all of that, what I really want you to see is the powerful imagery being used here. We cannot even begin to imagine this weight of this earth that we stand on, right? This formless mass of earth covered by water. And he simply by speaking, simply by speaking, brought the mountains high and took the valleys low, caused the continents to form so the water could be gathered and separated from the dry land. And that massive movement that God created was simply done by his voice. It was effortless, right? It's what Psalm 104 says. Verse 7, you see there the first line of verse 7, at your rebuke they fled. The winds, the waters, the land, the mountains, the valleys, they all obey the voice of the Lord, which, by the way, makes the parting of the Red Sea look like child's play, right? But that's the point. That's the point of Psalm 104. It was child's play. The, The more we know of God and his power and his sovereignty, the more we know that he is able to do Had God's people in that moment been meditating on the truths like this that they knew from the creation account? Had the Israelites, when they were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the sea, had they been thinking on this? Maybe they would have responded differently because when Pharaoh's army was coming for them and they were trapped at the sea, they see the army coming. What was their immediate response, if you recall? They started griping and complaining. God, why did you bring us out here? If all you meant to do was have us die here, we would have rather died in Egypt. How dare you, God? Maybe, just maybe, if they would have been meditating on God's power and creation, how he spoke the world into existence, maybe instead they would have simply said to God, would you just do it again, God? 
speak and move these waters out of the way. We know you're able. That's not what they said. And it's because they had small thoughts of God. Look, how often is that true of us? Right? We carry around small thoughts of God. So when things get tough, when we're going through a trial, when we're going through a hardship, we complain and we fail to remember that God is able. Just how glorified would God have been by his people when they stood at the edge of the Red Sea if they had said, God, Pharaoh's army is coming. And if we're being honest, we're afraid if we're being honest. But we also know that you can do all things, including speaking to water to move it out of the way. So we're asking if you would just do it again. What a powerful prayer that is. How often does that need to be the kind of prayer that we make to God? I'm going through a tough time right now, Father. I'm afraid, but I trust you. And I know you're able. So I'm simply asking you to do, again, what you've always done, to be faithful. You're able. You see, creation is established by God. And simply meditating over that is to bring us hope and confidence in who he is. In God's sovereignty, he established the mountains, the valleys, the borders of the ocean. Every time you stand at a beach or at the edge of the ocean or at the heights of a mountain, you ought to remember and know that God placed them there and he keeps them there. Creation, all of it, was established by God. It is also, third, sustained by God. It is sustained by God. So this is the third truth I want us to meditate on this morning. I want us to look at verses 10 through 30 together. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of verses. We don't have time to go through every single one of them line by line. I would encourage you to take time to meditate over this psalm line by line, uh, even this afternoon or, or in the coming days. But the psalmist simply takes the next 21 verses, verses 10 through 30, and shows us over and over again how God is involved day by day, moment by moment, sustaining his created world. You see it beginning right there in verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. He takes the masses of water and he shapes the land in such a way to deliver water to the very places that he needs it to be. And in doing so, he provides for the beast of the field, right? He has shaped this world so that water gets where it needs to be so that it can provide sustenance for the land and for his created beings. Those streams bring sustenance to plant life where the birds dwell. You see that moving on in verses 10 and 11. And I love, if we even skip down to verse 14, I love this statement in verse 14 because it's so simple and yet so awe-inspiring at the same time. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. I just meditate over that Simple statement. It sounds so simplistic, but it is an overwhelming reality to meditate on, right? Especially this time of year. Are you tired of cutting your grass yet, right? It's constantly growing, right? Every week you got to cut it again. We normally just think of it that way, right? Grass just grows. That's what it does. And it's true. That is what it does. And there are scientific explanations we could give, and those would be true and right. But it is also true. The Psalm 104 makes clear that God is the one who causes the movement of the atoms and the processes in the cells and the multiplication of cells that cause the grass to grow. He causes every blade of grass on the planet Earth to grow every single day. That's what the psalmist, that's the truth that he wants to rest in your heart. Even the growth of the grass is directed and sustained by the sovereign hand of God. And it says he does it to provide for the livestock. Of course, it goes on to say that he he does it in uh, the end of verse 14 and then into 15, that he causes 
plants to grow, for, for man, for humanity to cultivate, to bring forth food, to, to, to supply what we need, to give us wine and oil and bread, to gladden our hearts, make our face shine and strengthen our hearts. They're all good gifts from God directed by his sovereignty and sustaining of creation. And then if you skip down to verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. Again, if we look back to Genesis 1, it tells us that God intentionally arranged the sun and the earth and the moon. He arranged them in an intentional way to mark out time, days, years, and seasons. That's an astonishing reality to meditate over. The solar system we inhabit is God's clock. You ever thought about that before? The solar system is God's clock. The planets orbiting the sun are like celestial gears put in place by God to measure out time with absolute precision. I don't know about you, but I'm in all of these of these kind of master clockmakers, these watchmakers who can create time pieces of exquisite accuracy, right? These tiny gears they can arrange and, and set in such a way that they run and run and keep time to the exact moment, to the exact second for long, long, enduring periods of time, right? It is an amazing thing to think about. But what Psalm 104 says to us is that God created the laws of physics, the laws of gravity, and he has used it to create a solar system-sized clock to measure out years and days and seasons, and it has kept perfect time for millennia after millennia. God has given us the moon to mark the seasons. Even the sun knows its time for setting. It is an astonishing reality. He even uses, of course, the sun and the moon to give light to the day. And he, verse 20 says that he makes darkness and it is night. And even in that, the wisdom of God is on display. Right? He has done it to give room for the various animals to operate and to somewhat, not, not perfectly in this fallen world, but to somewhat be protected from one another. Right? This is the point of what's being said in 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Verse 20, you make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. But when the sun rises, they steal away. They lie down in their dens. They take a break. And then verse 23, man goes out to his work to labor until evening. Even with the animals that hunt at night versus uh, humanity who needs to operate in the day, God's kindness is on display. I mean, you can read stats about your chances of living in a hike through the jungle during the day versus at night, right? You would much rather hike through the jungle during the day than at night. But it's all in God's good sovereignty and providence. Which is why, by the way, the the psalmist almost interrupts himself in Psalm 24. He just can't stop. He has to come to kind of a mini conclusion, but he's going to carry on. But even in verse 24, he just stops and says, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. It, it, it is so, just your wisdom is on display in how you have arranged this world your manifold works. As we meditate on and look at creation, we see the wisdom of God on display. But of course, the psalmist is not done yet. He wants to talk about the sea creatures. And so he gets to verse 25. He says, here's the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures, innumerable living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now, what is Leviathan? 
you will get a different answer for just about every biblical scholar that you ask. There are all different kinds of views and perspectives on what this Leviathan, this sea creature, this, this monster is. And I'm not going to get into all that this morning because ultimately the point is this, that the most grand, powerful sea creature that you can imagine is God's pet, right? That's the imagery being given to us here. He put this unthinkably powerful, maybe perhaps terrifying sea monster, sea creature, Leviathan in his sea, and he gave him the sea to just play in it. It's like God's fish tank, right? That's, that's the enormity, the majesty of who God is. That's what's being communicated to us in verse 26. He's not intimidated or overwhelmed or concerned about Leviathan. Leviathan is his. It belongs to him. It serves his purposes. Furthermore, he goes on to say that all creatures, including Leviathan, depend on God for their sustenance. He is the one who feeds them. Do you see that in the beginning of verse 27? These all look to you to give them their food in due season. He provides for them, the, the land animals, the, the sea animals. He is the one who feeds them, including Leviathan. You see, we so often think of this, this is just a circle of life, right? This is just how ecosystems work, just plants grow, animals are born, other animals are prey, they eat those animals, those animals eat plants, this is just what happens, and there's truth to that, right? God has given us minds and intellect, and, and we have science, and we ought to be thankful for science who understands a lot of these things, but we can both see and understand how it works, and yet at the same time understand that God is the one behind it all making it happen. That as Colossians 1 tells us and Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the one holding all things together by the word of his power. He holds this world together. He holds every atom together, every cell together. He is the one, which is why verses 29 and 30 remind us that the life of all creatures is God's to give and it's God's to take away. When he hides his face, they are dismayed. Verse 29, when you take away their breath, they die, they return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. In other words, God sustains everything that we see. It is his doing. He actively uses and guides the laws of nature that he created to provide for his creation. Psalm 104 tells us that God is not a, a clockmaker who winds it up and lets it go. No, he is intimately involved every day, every moment, causing these things to happen, providing for his creation and sustaining his creation. This is how we are to view the world in order to give him the praise that he deserves. So, for example, when we were going through the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1 says there was famine in the land, and so uh, Ruth and her family had to leave, right? They had to flee Bethlehem. But at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, they come back because it says the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. It was his doing. He brought the rains back to the land. He caused the crops to grow. And the people in Ruth's time looked at that and said, that means the Lord has visited us. You see, it's unfortunate that modern man often looks with prideful disdain on ancient people, right? We see them. They were simplistic in the way they thought about the world. They were foolish in many ways, and we're the wise ones who know better than those foolish people knew back in those ancient days. After all, we know that science, right? We know the science of what causes clouds to form and what causes droughts to happen. We know the laws of gravity and how things move. We know how it all operates. So we are so much more wise than they are. But what I want to say to you this morning 
is the Bible would say to us that the man who stands and proclaims that the drought has ended because of the hand of the Lord is far exceedingly more wise than the man who gives only a scientific explanation and gives no praise to God for it. The Bible calls the man who gives no acknowledgement of God's sovereign hand over creation, the Bible calls him a fool and calls the man who says it is God's doing the wise one. Now listen, I'm not anti-science. That's not the point of my sermon this morning. It's not the point of Psalm 104. I think science is a gateway to understanding more and more the glories of God. I'm thankful for it, right? It makes us be even more inspired and more filled with all of who God is and what he has done and what he's accomplished as we learn more and more about the intricacies of this world. So I'm thankful for the scientific process, but I am saying if you only give glory to some kind of neutral mother nature and some kind of scientific process and God isn't part of the story, the Bible calls you a fool. And he would rather you just give him the credit and be in ignorance of the science that that's what's needed. And he will call you wise. You see, the truth that God sustains his creation is meant to free us from worry and anxiety. This is the truth that is under our feet that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Listen to Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read an extended portion from the Sermon on the Mount, but bear with me. Matthew 6 verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus himself commands us to look at creation, right? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. Look at them. Meditate over them. And as you do that, remember that God is the one who provides for them. And as you remember how he provides for them, be encouraged to know that he cares more about you than he does about them. And he will also provide for you. Psalm 104 is meant to bring us peace and assurance that God is able to care for us and provide for us, which is why we can pray to our kind and merciful Heavenly Father, give us this day our daily bread. He's the one who provides it. He is the one who sustains creation. So creation serves God's purposes. Creation is established by God. Creation is sustained by God. And quickly, I just want us to reflect on these final two truths. Creation brings joy to God. Look at verses 31 and 32 with me. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So as, as the psalmist comes to the end, as he's nearing the end of the psalm, he simply says, as he meditates over these realities, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. But what I really want to zero in on is that second line. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works. The Lord looks with joy on his creation. He rejoices in his creation. The work of his hands bring him joy. Now, of course, there is there is brokenness and destruction in this world because of the fall. I don't mean to gloss over that. There, there is destruction and brokenness that has marred the beauty of his creation. But even in the brokenness, God is working for our good, and therefore he is rejoicing over his creation and the work of his hands. There are depths of the ocean floor that no eye has ever seen. There are galaxies and stars and planets that no man has ever set eyes on. Yet God has seen them from the very first moment of creation. And he has been rejoicing in them from that day forward. He rejoices in the works of his hands. There are aspects of his creation that no man may ever see in this life. But God has seen it and he rejoices in it. I think that's what the psalmist is getting at in verse 31, that the Lord rejoices in his work. He sees the evidence of his glory flung across the skies, and he is proud of what he has created. He rejoices in what he has created. It brings him joy. And so you see, that informs how we are to think about this world, how we are to think about this universe. It did not come into being by some accident or some chance. It wasn't, it didn't erupt out of chaos. It wasn't created out of some mythological struggle, and now God has to put up with it. No, he created out of his own goodwill, and he rejoices in what he has made. He finds joy in it. He finds pleasure in it. Therefore, we also ought to find joy and pleasure in what we see. So we are called to join him in this rejoicing, which brings us to our final truth that creation causes us to praise God. Look there with me at verses 33 through 35. This is the response of the psalmist to all of these meditations. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. He's saying, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I will praise God for who he is. I will sing to the Lord because of how he has revealed himself, the glories of his name through his created world. But hear me this morning. It's not something we should do because we must. It's something we must do because we simply can't help ourselves, right? We should just overflow in praise to God as we meditate on these realities. Our our hearts should erupt in praise and our mouths give the glory due to his name. As long as we draw breath, we ought to respond by singing our praises to God. And as we meditate on the glory of his creation, we should please him as we rejoice in him. Now, as we move from that to verse 35, verse 35 can seem out of place. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. That, right, it's a strange statement to find here at the end of Psalm 104, this imprecatory, like calling a judgment on sinners. So what is it that's going on here? Well, in many ways, I think it's how any of us should respond when we reflect on the beauty of this creation and the praise that is due God's name. We too should desire that every mouth on this planet be directed toward giving praise to God, the praise and the glory due to his name. And every place that doesn't happen, every place that doesn't happen is making a mockery of him and is blaspheming the name of our glorious God. Therefore, we too should long for a day when there is no place on this earth that is robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves. We should long for the day when there is no man taking glory for himself instead of giving it to God. I think that's what has motivated the statement in verse 35. It's a, 
It's a longing for the new heavens and the new earth. It's a longing for the day that will come when every single created thing will be directed toward its true and eternal purpose, giving God the glory due to his name that he alone deserves. You see, as we conclude here, this is where we need to just let the grace of God wash over our souls this morning. And we need to rejoice in the gospel together. Seeing God's hand in the created order should cause our hearts to want to burst with joy and gladness as we reflect on his majesty. But here's the reality. Romans 1 makes clear that we would be cut off from this truth for all eternity if not for the intervening grace of God to give sight to our blind eyes. Listen to what Romans 1, 18 through 20 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. But yet every man suppresses this truth, suppresses the truth that God's power and glory is revealed through his creation. Therefore, apart from the grace of God in your life and in my life, we would be standing here this morning sharing in their darkness. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 tells us that God has given us eyes to see. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the only reason we together this morning can rejoice in Psalm 104 is because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. If Christ had not lived a righteous life in our place, if he had not died in our place on the cross, if he had not taken the wrath that we deserved on himself so that we could be forgiven and given new life and had the spirit sent to dwell within us and having our our hearts awakened be our heart of stone being taken away and a heart of flesh being given to us to have our spiritually blind eyes open to see the glory of god on display in creation we would still be dwelling in darkness and we wouldn't see any of these truths either and so we don't look on our lost neighbor or co-worker with pride we don't look down our nose at them and say i can see what you can't see no, we say, I wouldn't see it either if not for the grace of God. But it's because God has shown the light of the glory into our hearts that we have been awakened to see his glory on display in creation. Therefore, when you cast your eyes on the clouds or the rain begins to fall or a crystal clear blue sky catches your attention, when you gaze at the mountains or look down into the canyons, be in awe not just of the God who created it and established it and sustains it, but be in awe that you've been given eyes to see it, that you've been given the spiritual eyes to see the glory of God on display in his creation and let your heart overflow with joy and gratitude to your merciful creator and king that has redeemed you and given you life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that you have revealed to us how creation displays your power and your glory, and your majesty. And so, Father, I pray that even as we enjoy creation, that we would be brought to worship, that we would be brought to worship you, the creator of all things, who rules over creation, who sustains creation, who has established creation. Father, we are so thankful that you rejoice in this world, and I pray that we would join you in that rejoicing, that we would give glory and the praise due to your name and to your name alone. Father, what a privilege it is even now to conclude this morning uh, by celebrating communion together to give thanks to you for the work of Christ that stands in our place 
And by his death on the cross, you have given us life that we might see your glory on display in this world. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.